How old are your kids? Uh, oldest is seven now, and then there's a five-year-old, and the one I was putting to bed is two and a half. Uh, the full spread. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. And this is all the play area behind me. You can see the cardboard box oh, for yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, my, and I'm about to say my my place is just as messy, but I can't blame the kids. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, we have the Blair Witch Project happening over in Austin. Oh yeah, sorry. I'm just moving the camera so it's not like ten thousand feet away. Sky cam. You want, we don't want sky cam. <laughs> yeah, that's a little better. Well, welcome back to another episode of Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug. This is episode 36, and this week um, I'm actually fortunate enough to be joined by Richard Garriott and Star Long, two of the original masterminds behind Ultima Online. Uh, I've invited them on the show to take some time to talk about the early history of the game, beginning with its, ins- with, uh, beginning with its inception, I can talk tonight, I swear, as Multima. So, Ultima Online. Um, as I recall, the original name was Multima. It was kind of a portmanteau of multiplayer and Ultima. Is that, that that's true, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, in fact, here I'll let me, let me jump in ahead of you, Star. Uh, uh, in, in that, uh, it's important to note that you know, as long as we've been making Ultimas. Uh, you know, the the fundamental desire to make them multiplayer has been around since the beginning. Uh, you know, in fact, the whole reason why starting with Ultima three, you had a whole party of people, was to simulate the lack of existence of other play- people playing with you. And while there were earlier games, like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, in fact, since the beginning of games at all, even before the Apple II, you know, people tying together on some of these university networks. We're already making some multiplayer, you know, games, including, you know, sort of role-playing games, to, such as they might have existed back in the early days. Uh, and com- companies like Kesmai and others were doing bulletin board service-style multiplayer games. And so, year after year after year, we were looking at when is the right day to make, when is the right year to make a multiplayer Ultima. And we even talked with a lot of those companies to about putting together a, a, a project. To, to do that, but but it never, even internally, even as excited as I would have been about it, it, it the, the, the time never seemed appropriate year after year after year because the biggest selling bulletin board service games were had a few thousand subscribers in them, and until the internet existed, uh, there really wasn't a business model to justify a AAA frontline title, uh, and that is what then changed Right about the time uh, that Star and I started talking about it, and I'll, I'll pass over to Star to uh, talk about, you know, how this idea Multima went, try multiplayer Ultima went from constantly being, uh, even internally thought of as not now, to how we at least have Star, personally, changed our minds internally, and the the battle that took to uh, uh, to get it over the to, to even get it started, much less finished. Right. Yeah, I think the real turning point at Origin, honestly, was uh, two events. One, uh, uh, the World Wide Web. You know, so the internet existed for a very long time. It was really the the start of the web as we know it now, uh, and the idea of having a website that really started changing things. And in particular, though, for me personally, it was uh, Doom. And being able to do play deathmatch in Doom with at the when I first started Origin, I was in QA, and when Doom came out at lunchtime, and then when we were doing crunch while we were eating our crunch meal in the evening, we would all play these Doom deathmatches. And meanwhile, when we weren't doing that, we were testing these single-player games. And uh, while you know, definitely Origin was always on this sort of cutting edge of what 
the AI could do and what the immersion of the world and, and the simulation layers that were put in place to uh, use this thing to have this thing. None of us had experienced anything like the unpredictability and randomness and insanity of playing with other players in real time like it was playing Doom Deathmatch. And yeah, those were fun. That, that really lit a fire in me, and I had, was doing Q... I did Q... One of the very last projects I did QA for was a project called BioForge, and the, which was the first of what was supposed to be a series of games at Origin that were supposed to be cinematic games. Uh, we were really inspired by uh, Alone in the Dark. Uh, right. And I actually did a uh, little-known trivia fact uh, a lot of the motion capture in BioForge was me. Oh, so, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, and it was pre-camera motion capture. It was a magnetic system. So uh, instead of little dots, you were wearing these magnetic sensors on that were all wired. So I like had all these wires connected to me. Oh, it was, it was like walking through a spider web. Because BioForge was a game about being a cyborg. And then I looked like a cyborg. <laughs> anyway, that was kind of a segue. But back to back on topic. Uh, so Ken Demarest was the director of that, and he and I started really passionately talking about, you know, you, the origin for years have been talking about multiplayer Ultima, and Ultima always sort of lent itself to this idea because it had all these companions, and it was always this kind of interesting discussion of, well, it just makes sense, just like you have your D and D dungeon party, and in fact, Richard can attest to this. Uh, oh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Richard can attest to this. I mean, the 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 group in you know the companions were like his you know adventuring party companions in D and D, and his and his adventuring group in you know uh, uh, SCA. Uh, the SCA. So the idea was, you know, it had always been discussed of like, well, wouldn't it be great if each person could play one of the companions? And in fact. There were lots of people who played single-player RPGs that had parties in them, like Ultima and Wizardry, together at the same computer. Like, that's how my friend and I played Ultima and Wizardry, where we would take turns driving, and but we each had our characters in the party that were ours, hmm. even though you, were, you had a main character that you would drive around. Yeah, my friend and I did the same thing with um, Might and Magic 2 and 3. Yeah, so, I mean, a fairly common... Uh, kind of play style, uh, especially for those of us who kind of grew up playing D&D, it just felt, sort of felt natural to do it that way. And so Ken and I started having these discussions about what we really think, you know, we really need to make a multiplayer Ultima. Now is like the right time, like, you know, uh, there, there are amazing things happening with like Genie Air Warrior or Neverwhere Nights, and, but none of those have the sort of brand power and sort of following that Ultima has, and and none of those have the sort of simulation layer, you know, that sort of sandbox gameplay level that Ultimas were kind of like the cutting edge of. And so we're like, we just, we have to get that on the web. And so Ken and I uh, then went to Richard, who was an easy sell. Uh, <laughs> Richard was immediately like, oh, well, of course, like we've been, we've been wanting to do this for years, you know, this will be easy. We'll just go to exec and, you know, we'll, we'll get approved for some money. And we had been acquired by Electronic Arts at this point. Right. Yeah, but by the way, Starb, I can throw in one comment in your story, though, which was, to me, the reason why I was such an easy sell uh, was the existence of the World Wide Web. To me, that was the change of state that was profound. Prior to that, it was very, it, it was factually true that the largest multiplayer games only had a few thousand people that could ever connect to them because people were paying by the hour with a dial-up modem to manually connect to a very specific server. Much more complex than today when we were, you know, everybody's on the internet. And and it was really Star, Star brought this case to me and he said, Richard, the World Wide Web is coming online and it's coming online fast. I mean, you could, as soon as it started, it was, it was painfully obvious that it was going to, you know, not only thing. take over all these kind of mundane activities of life, but that Everyone could could technically now connect to something trivially, and uh, and even at this early moment, Star, to his credit, said, "Look, you know, it's going to take a few years before this becomes ubiquitous, but it's going to take us a few years to make a game." 
And so now is really the right time to start building the game so that when the web matures, our game will be ready and we will have the first of this grand and glorious new type of game out on the market. And by the way, he was exactly right. However, it was not an easy sale. No. And this was uh, 1995, for reference. Uh, right. And uh, so, yeah, it was not an easy sale. And, uh, you know, so, you know I, was, I had actually had just moved over into product development to be an associate producer on Ultima 9. So I was my real job was supposed to be Ultima 9, but what I really wanted to do was Multima, and that's and all this was a long explanation of like, well, what are we going to call it? And then it was like, well, obviously we should call it Multima because, you know, multiplayer Ultima. And at the time, the original idea was not what it ended up morphing into. It was not an MMO. It was going to be a multiplayer game played over the internet with a group of people. Right, because so, we're still on the idea of, you know, one person controls everybody in the party. Right, and so we, I mean, we were thinking at that scale, you know, tens of people, not hundreds or, or what it ended up being, thousands. And so, uh, yeah, so, so we came up with a pitch, a very simple pitch, and, and with some examples of what was happening in the space, uh, like uh, the Imagination Network and... Uh, this uh, this game actually made by one of our former uh, Origin employees. Uh, it was called Dragon Spires at the time, but then it, it, it transformed into what uh, was still running today, actually, uh, Furcadia. Oh, okay, um, right, uh, Dr. Cat's thing. Yeah, Dr. Cat. Uh, so uh, we, we used all those as examples, and we kind of assembled a little pitch, and, and, and then, uh, you know, but at the time, Origin had all of its budget committed to other projects like Wing Commander 4, uh, Ultima 9, uh, Crusader, I mean a whole bunch of other things that were happening and there was no money for us and right. to do this. So it was like, so Richard had to go to Electronic Arts to try and convince them and I'll let Richard describe oh, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so what's funny about this moment is that Electronic Arts, like most large companies of, of that time and probably still today, Make try to make decisions about you know saying we're going to fund a game or not fund a game based on some you know rational metrics based decision making process some fair ranking of of opportunities to make those judgments calls about where where to invest right and so one of the ways they do that is any team that wants to make a project or get a project greenlit puts together a proposal that says here's the game we want to do descriptively here's the team we're going to need to pull it off which also implies a budget we're going to need to pull it off. Then you hand that to the sales department, who then goes, well, if you actually ship the game with the features you've just described, in the time frame you've just described, we're going to do some analysis of the marketplace and tell you what we think that game will earn based on, you know, based on what, we, what you're claiming. And now you can compare the cost that the development team claims they're going to need and the sales that the sales team thinks it will, it will earn, and you can do that to do a cost-benefit analysis and rank all the projects that you're thinking of investing in against each other. And right. so it's a very formal process. It's very clear. We knew what it was, and so we would put this together. We put together this Multima pitch. We took it to Electronic Arts. We put together a very good pitch that included the fact that, hey, by the way, we know the Internet is only just now coming to existence. So there's no real comparables. But, by the way, we can see that give us a couple of years, and the Internet is going to blow away all these little dial-up bulletin board system things. But from the sales department standpoint, they look at that and go, look, the best-selling multiplayer games in history are these, you know, dial-up BBS games, which sell, you know, usually like one to 10,000 units. The largest-selling game in history for, for the required being online at that point had sold 15,000 units. And so they said, we're going to give you, the Ultima guys, twice the world's best-selling online games. We'll give you 30,000 units as the lifetime sales of this game, which compared to the millions of dollars it even took back then to make games, you know, 30,000 units means you're going to lose all your money. And so EA came back and said, well, Star, Richard, you know, we, we love you guys. Uh, we think this is an interesting idea, but there's just no way. This isn't even close to being something we would want to greenlight and fund, so sorry, but no. Well, this meeting happens twice a year. So six months later, the Internet is growing and getting bigger, 
It's becoming much more obvious that this is the right thing to do. Star and I go back, and we're going like, okay, we've, we've, we've been unwavering in our belief that this is what we need to start, so let's go pitch them again. Second time through, they tell us no a second time. Yeah. We go there six months later. So now it's a year after our first pitch. So it's been a full 12 months from the first time we pitched this. We give the pitch a third time. We're actually told no a third time. But this time, the behavior of we're not leaving the room until you say yes. We're just going like, you guys don't get it. We think this is so important that we're willing to put our credibility on the line in this room with the senior management and say, look, don't fund the whole game. Just just fund a prototype. Just let us run our other business as origin, our, our whole totality of origin over budget by $250,000. With that $250,000, we can build a prototype. And with a prototype, just let that speak to you. Let you know. Let don't 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 just push us out the door right now. At least let us do that and pr- prove our case to you because we think you'll be convinced by that. And frankly, very begrudgingly, Larry probes for it on a single sheet of paper. I give Richard and Star the you know the the, the ability to go over budget by two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you know and then basically stick us out of the room. And Star, it was actually one hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs> like, okay, $150,000. basically nothing. Yeah. But, so, so what was funny, though, is we, we had to then go back, and I'll, and I'll, I'll pass it to in a second to describe the development conditions of Ultima Online as we were... We, we did, the project was literally the bastard stepchild of anything happening in Origin and EA worldwide because no one other than Star and I and the team we hired to put this together believed in it or wanted it. And so, uh, uh, and so it was very, very hard to kind of keep that team together. But when we did get the demo out, uh, something amazing happened. Because after we spent that 150 grand, we had a barely cobbled together version of Ability Free Global run around in a virtual world and interact with each other, fight each other, collect a little bit of treasure. We didn't have enough money to send. We had to make CDs to send to people to play the beta. Because the, the internet was so slow back then, you couldn't download the client. You had to right. really get a CD. And uh, and so we put up what was one of, if not EA's first websites, one of the first websites, that basically said, hey, we're the Ultima guys, we're in this game called Multima. Uh, you know, if you want the privilege of being a beta tester for us, please sign up here. But by the way, it's going to cost you $5 just for the privilege of us manufacturing and sending you a CD. And within a couple of weeks... 50,000 people had signed up to pay $5 to beta test it. And that was already so, that was so fast and so far already in excess of the lifetime sales projections that sales have put in on this that EA went from thinking of us as the bastard stepchild product to literally, quote, the most important thing happening in the EA worldwide. But, but <laughs> oh, I, I'd like to back up when Star stepped out to talk a little bit about what it was like during those the the, the spending of the one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars for life as the Multima team. Uh, yeah, and before I do that, though, I wanted to one quick note about the paying for the beta. So you could argue that that is the very first example of crowdfunding. That's true. That's true. We crowdfunded the manufacture and distribution of the beta for Ultima. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and all and yeah. So I'm I'm gonna go with that. Yeah, uh, why not? Make it a full circle. Let's so. and say first crowdfunding ever. Yeah, uh, because Minecraft gets all the credit for really. So, but yeah, we'll we'll say we did. Uh, so uh, we got the hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, and then we had the uh, the fun. Well, first of all, at that point we were still called Multima. To go back to the original question, we were still called Multima, but but. Once we actually got money and people were like, well, this is going to be a real thing, everyone was like, well, that's a BS name. Like, we can't call it Multima. Like, first of all, the brand is Ultima. So whatever we call it has to have Ultima in the title. You can't put an M in front of it. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. And so, uh, and they were right. So uh, at that point, uh, that's when we switched over to calling it Ultima Online, when we actually had money and we had a project that we were going to start this prototype. Uh, and so, we, at that point, we we had enough money to to basically hire a programmer, uh, and but we ha- couldn't figure out what to do. Like, who are we going to hire? 
because, first of all, nobody at our company had any experience writing any kind of network code, multiplayer, anything. Like, we had, at that point, we had made one multiplayer game, uh, a game called uh, Wing Commander Academy. Right. Uh, and so, um, but we, what this was very, very different. And so we had uh, the bright idea uh, to look to MUDs. So we found, uh, I found a guy, a local guy, Rick Delishmit, uh, who still to this day, like one of the most brilliant programmers I've ever worked with in my whole career. Like the guy can basically do, he is the MacGyver of programming. He can basically make anything you want. Now, it is rigged together with duct tape and glue and string and gum and a quarter stuck in the edge with some tin, you know, with some tin foil, but it'll do it. It'll work. Just don't shake it too hard. <laughs> uh, uh, and so he, within two weeks, took the Ultima 6 engine, because I knew this was going to be your next question. So we took Yeah, so let's 6. just fall right into that. Uh, we, we took, because we needed like a set of art, uh, tile-based, because we wanted to keep it really simple, isometric, so we took Ultima 6. We didn't even use the latest engine we could have used, which would have been Ultima 7 at the time. Right. Uh, actually, no, Ultima 8. We could have used Ultima 8 at the time, but oh, yeah, Ultima 95. 6 was much faster and easier to work with. Um, so uh, we built a prototype in two weeks. Uh, Rick wrote us a server that, and the only thing you could do is you had a little character, um, uh, and you could, I think you could choose between one of the companions. You could be any one of the companions or the avatar. Uh, and you could run around, run around uh, uh, Britannia, and you couldn't chat or anything, uh, and you didn't really have an inventory or there was no combat, but you could run over an object, and then that object would be, you would have picked up the object, and if anyone bumped into you, the object would jump on the, drop on the ground, and they could pick it up. And that was the only thing you could do in the game. And... We, uh, because there was no chat or anything like that, we, we basically got most of the company on a giant in conference call. So everybody <laughs> was like on speakerphone at their desk. Uh, we got the we got the whole company, which at that point was like a you know 50 people. I was uh, I always always brag about how I was employee 30 at Origin, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, but we had so we had 50 people playing the game, uh, and the entire time it was happening, you know, like. Uh, I think we got. I think it ran for like maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes before the server cratered. Uh, and uh, but that was enough. Like that, the entire company was like, "Oh my God, what just happened? Like that. This is like incredible, amazing. Like because most of the company actually had no idea what we were doing until like the day before, where we told everybody, "Hey, you have to drop what you're doing, install this program, uh, and run it." And it kind of lit this fire in the company of like, "Wow." Like here's something really interesting and different and completely completely new that we none of us have done before, uh, and so now we only used Ultima Six for that initial prototype, um, and but with that prototype we proved uh, to EA. We then showed that prototype to EA, and then that's what EA sort of had the same reaction of like, oh wow, let's give you a real budget. Uh, so we got a real budget. I think our uh, total budget for the entire project was eight hundred and fifty thousand hmm. uh, uh, dollars, and uh, this was uh, so. This was fall of '95, so September '95, uh, and we uh, so then we started hiring uh, people, and we immediately moved over, and Rick started writing a new engine from scratch uh, at that point because. Um, we didn't want to go as high fidelity as uh, Ultima 8 because we, again we were still dealing. We had to we had to balance what we were doing graphically versus what we could the information we could transmit over the internet. Right. Uh, and uh, so we went with more Ultima 7 level graphics. Um, and uh, yeah, we wrote the engine from scratch from there. Um, we wrote we 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 built the, uh, the first website. That for Origin had that EA had, as to my knowledge, uh, that was covered in llamas because Rick has a thing about llamas. Uh, llamas and to, the, to this day, popular in Ultima and things related to online games. 
Yes, uh, <laughs> and uh, the cult of the purple llama is alive and well. Uh, and uh, so uh, we 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 put up that first website, and we just started like, and that website was like a public website, like, it, and it, we just sort of like we blogged on it. Raft Cost, but we hired Raft Coster, so that was the next thing. Rick had worked on a mud called Legend Mud, and and when we when we got the money, and we, you know we were going to put a team together with me and Rick, because at that point the was me and Rick Delishman. So two guys, uh, and uh, he he said, well, I you know I had this amazing designer that worked on Legend Mud with me, this guy Raph Coster, and so that's when Raph Cost Raph Coster was the next team member. He and his wife Kristen Coster were the next two team members to join, um, and uh, so uh, from there we 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 had a not only did we have a live beta test, we actually had a live pre alpha test too, uh, and. We had that live pre-alpha test for E3. So we started the project in September. We had a live pre-alpha ready for E3 in June the following year. So very quick yeah, turnaround. Yeah, really when rapid. You, when you, especially when you think of like how long it takes to make things now. Um, so uh, oh, and I and I didn't I didn't get to Richard's cue that he wanted me to talk about the working conditions. Okay, so <laughs> even though everyone was super excited. We were some weird sort of, like no one knew what we were, and because all the other projects had been budgeted and uh, you know the teams assigned for those, we kind of uh, you know became the island of uh, misfit toys, and we were either people completely new to the industry like Raph and Rick, or uh, you know the weirdo shaved head XQA guy with the piercings uh, <laughs> leading the team. Uh, you know, uh, and then but then there were a few sort of outliers, uh, you know, in our other teams. Like actually, one one of the very first artists, uh, this guy Michael Priest, who's a, a famous uh, uh, rock and roll poster artist here in Austin. Oh, okay. Uh, he he was our first artist on the project, and he mo he made most of the uh, environmental art for that project. Um, uh, so and the. We didn't have there was there wasn't really anywhere to put us yet, but we had just expanded to the top floor of the building. But as part of expanding to the top floor of the building, we were remodeling it for our needs. But uh, so they were like, well, you can be on the top floor, but by the way, it's going to be remodeled. And we're like, oh, okay, okay, not really thinking this through. Well, we were one. So the, they basically left one office and the hallway leading from the office to the elevator. Uh, unremodeled for us to live in while they remodeled around us. And when I say remodel, they took down the walls to the studs, including the exterior facing windows oh, wow. for the rest of the floor. So, like, it was, and it, this was winter time, right? So, this is like, you know, by now it's like October, November. And granted, it doesn't get that cold in Texas, but it gets cold enough. Uh, so, we had, and at that point, we had staffed up to like six team members. And we were literally in an office in a hallway. And the servers for the project happened to be, uh, we, kept, we couldn't figure out why the, the offices would never get warm. Like the, the heater was on, you know, the, the building maintenance people, even though they were tearing things down around us, assured us that, oh no, everything's working, you should have heat. And, we, and, and like it would never heat up the offices until we figured out that the machine that we were running the server on was sitting right underneath the thermostat for our room. So as far as the thermostat was concerned, oh, it was cooking. hot in there. <laughs> uh, and it took us like a month to figure that out. So we were oh, freezing geez. in an office being torn down around us, and literally to the point where when you would exit the elevator, if you would go left where that Multima sign is that you may have seen pictures of, that was pointing right. you to survival. Because <laughs> if you went right, you would walk out of the building and fall five floors. Uh. <laughs> but the, but the, way that, the point of all that, we, I know we give you an incredibly long answer to a simple question of how did this thing get started. No, but, that's uh, good. It, it really was a, a hard-fought battle to get the project approved, to build the team. The working conditions were terrible uh, right up until it became the most important thing happening in EA worldwide, and then ultimately 
succeeded at really opening the, the, the floodgates of massively multiplayer as a genre. Definitely. And, um, okay. So, well, that was, yeah, that was, wow, half an hour. I'm just on the first question. We're going to have a long <laughs> chat if we keep to that pattern. Uh, although you, you actually also did speak to... You, uh, you picked the wrong two guys to interview. If you were, if you were looking for a short interview. <laughs> well, no, although easy. actually it's good because good. Um, like as you spun that story, you uh, you actually also answered uh, question two, which was, you know, the process of selling EA on this concept. So right. uh, move definitely past that. Um, it's good that you mentioned Raf Koster because, of course, uh, as I understand, he was like the brainchild of um, that artificial life engine. It was one of the more exciting features, and it was ultimately cut from the game, um, I think partly for performance and partly because uh, the players were just killing everything too fast for the engine to keep up with. Is that kind of how that played out? Yeah. Well, but, uh, but it'll be back up and, you know, so, so Raph did a lot of, of uh, great things on the project. I mean, Raph was sort of the guy that had the, some of the, from a design standpoint, had the most mud multi-user dungeon experience, uh, you know, along with our programmers and a couple other people. In fact, probably half the team was mud folks from, from the past. And, and so there were tons of really great things that Raph put in that stayed all the way into the, into the end. I happen to also be enthusiastic about that virtual ecology uh, feature. Um, you know, and in fact, before we invited in lots of players to play it, it, it seemed to work beautifully. You know, you, we had grass, you know, uh, uh, grassy areas that spawned vegetation for herbivores to eat, which would tend to, you know, you know uh, be attracted to this vegetation, and then come to an equilibrium of a population density that could, until it, you know, tapped out that amount of vegetation, and then you could introduce uh, carnivores that would then prey on the herbivores, and if they overate the herbivores, then the carnivores would die out, and that would also come to an equilibrium, and we then set it up to where, uh, you know, NPCs in towns could observe this behavior, and if the players went out and, for example, killed all the sheep in the forests or in the plains and the wolves didn't have anything to eat, then the wolves would forage farther and maybe even go into town and eat a villager baby or two, in which case the villagers would put up quests of saying, hey, avatars, you know, come and help us, uh, you know, get rid of this wolf problem, which you could solve hypothetically by reintroducing some sheep or culling some wolves. And in isolation, when no other players were present, uh, this seemed like a really brilliant idea, and um, uh, uh, and, and he, at least I too was pretty excited about it when I saw it, you know, uh, operational. And you know, but then as soon as we had anybody testing the game at all, instantaneously people were, you know, there were there was a person every screen full of of, of the world, right? It, on every screen of existence of the world, there was at least one player, and those players were looking for things to kill, and so whether it was a sheep that got spawned or a wolf that got spawned or, frankly, anything else that got spawned, or maybe even another player, they would go off and kill it. And so, and that really was, there was literally no level of dial-up of spawning that we could do that would allow the world to come into anything like that equilibrium. And so this man-months of work that had gone into this beautiful thing that happened in isolation ended up being, uh, you know, utterly useless in, a, in the practical reality of a multiplayer game, uh, and so it was extracted. But by the way, that issue still goes back to, you know, we discussed things like that today with Shroud of the Avatar. You know, our spawning structure for Shroud of the Avatar, I think, is fairly unique, but is a, but only is what it is based upon the journey we've all taken through the desire to have this impression on the player's mind of this of the spawning isn't just a random constant spew of creatures into their environment, but rather that there is something going on in this world beyond spawning uh, that gives logic and rationale to their presence. And if as a player you step back and watch, you see that unfold in front of you. If as a player you can actually take the time to step back and watch and not just, you know, kill all the next round of wolves to get to the next level. But I think we've done it. So by the way, when we, when we talk about Shroud of the Avatar, I'll tell you why I think we've pulled that off. But cool. So that does kind of... Oh, sorry? No, go ahead. Okay, sorry. That, that does kind of answer the uh, the A part of the question is that, you know, um, obviously then you do believe that at least 
uh, some version of this engine can work in MMOs today. And also, actually, um, <laughs> the secondary question of whether there is something similar planned for Shroud of the Avatar. Well, except for, but, uh, but uh, you know, Star always cautions me not to use other people's games as examples of things that concern me, but I, so I, I won't name the game. Uh, but some of our recent MMO competitors have announced specifically doing what's, what they've described as this exact same strategy of a virtual ecology, the same way I just described it. 10 or 15 years after we went through that lesson. Mm-hmm. And uh, so first heard them describe that, I was going, like, hey, I love these guys. I mean, they, they, nom- they normally do kick-ass games. That particular idea, the way they described it, sounds like you know dangerous news to me personally. Um, and so what we're doing in Shroud of the Avatar is not tackling that exact problem. We're not tackling the way... We're not building a virtual ecology. We're not building you know, vegetation that feeds herbivores and carnivores that prey on herbivores. And if herbivores don't exist, then carnivores will attack town to create quests. We're not doing that. What we're doing instead is we're saying, look, we want to make sure that when you come into a map, that instead of just seeing spawn points or even spawn density of things to harvest for value, that anything that does exist in that map has a rationale for being there, and you will see them performing what is their rationale even when you stumble upon them, you don't have to. You don't have to spy on them from a distance. You will commonly come across them in a way that sets it up. And I'll get, let me give you one uh, minor example. You know, uh, and but this is one by the way. This example I've also given to the team to tell them to go make these sorts of things. This is this is an exact directive I've given with the map, one of the maps in Shroud of the Avatar that I saw being built. Was, there was a map that we had that has some ruins on it, and near the ruins is a mausoleum kind of cave area. And, and, and one way you could do it is just, you know, spawn creatures through the map. My guidance was to go say, look, whoever we have spawning, like in this case we had these uh, elves that were uh, taking, re- reestablishing this area, so they were rebuilding up on top of those ruins. I said, they need to look like they're trying to reestablish. They're not just elves wandering around in some ruins to fight you. They need to appear like they're trying to reestablish themselves. They need to be doing things like have a tent and a commander and notes about why they're reestablishing themselves here in particular. And then in this cave slash mausoleum, maybe we'll spawn some undead, but we're going to spawn the undead near enough by that they'll be a pest to the elves. And so the elves that are trying to reestablish themselves will be bothered by the fact that there's undead coming out of here. And we'll make sure those spawners kind of push those two factions towards each other to where you'll commonly actually see them interacting. And so sometimes you'll only see one of the two, sometimes you'll see the other of the two, sometimes you see them both interacting. And so uh, and that's it's that interaction that appears to be purposeful that I believe is what's Im- important is a uh, is those uh, seemingly purposeful interactions that, that give you that tell you depth about the story of what's going on. It gives you backstory that fills in the the reality crafting of the world. And it gets back to that um, Ultima feeling that you know the world is happening around you. You're not, you know, the soul um, causal factor of everything. Exactly right. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, coming back to UO now, UO has always kind of been, it's always been a relatively plot free game. Uh, I mean, it was mostly geared toward the players creating their own experiences, but were there ever any plans for, you know, more involved quests or storylines that never materialized? Um, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question, and I actually don't think anyone's ever asked us that. So congratulations for first time in, you know, almost 20 years talking about <laughs> this game that someone's asked me an original question. So Hey, cool. Well. Yeah. You get a special special gold star, or maybe a chaos medal. Uh, so uh, chaos. That's, a, that's a really interesting question. We, we actually never plan to have uh, traditional narrative structure or uh, quests like uh, that you would find in a traditional role-playing game. We, it was always meant to be a fairly pure sandbox. With that said, the way we always wanted to deliver a narrative was through events in the game. And so uh, what we always tried to do was have uh, big events that would happen in the game 
uh, that would tell the story. Like the the very first one we did, I believe. Uh, so the the fiction explanation we had to we made up about the shards of the general world mortality to justify the reason there would be servers. So right. uh, you know we wanted a fictional explanation of why there would be multiple versions of the world instead of like we originally just wanted one world, but that was just like technically impossible. Yeah, no way you could so, support that many players. Right, and so we we had to come up with servers. So we came up with this idea that in Ultima One, when you smash the Jim of mortality that Mondane made, each one of those shards was its own little world, and that's what each server of Ultima One was. Well, then we and from there we established this narrative that Lord British wanted to restore the gem and 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 basically bring back the universe whole. Like uh, in, instead of instead of having this splintered multiverse have one single universe and and and, and have a history in that universe that goes forward, right. uh, whereas Blackthorn wanted to keep all of those things separate because you know that would be taking away the free will of all these people who had you know all had led their own virtual experiences and lives and all these virtual worlds had just as valid a reason to exist as. You'd have to lose one or the other. If two worlds right. evolve separately and you merge them again, somebody's reality is getting stomped on. Right. And so that was the overarching narrative uh, where Lord British had one motivation and Blackthorn had another. Uh, and while we never outright fought, there was always kind of this frenemy fiction about us. Um, in fact, we both had castles in, in, in Britain. Uh, you know, one just like one down the street from each other, literally. <laughs> uh, granted, Lord British had a larger castle because you know he is the king. Uh, but uh, and so we, what, the very first event we did was we made little shards to represent the the, the shards of the Jim mortality, and we scattered those throughout the world, uh, and basically had this event uh, with, uh, where you know. Lord British wanted you to gather them all together so you could put them together, whereas on the other side, Blackthorn was saying, well, no, 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 bring them to me because I'll keep them all separate. Uh, and so players had the choice kind of. So we, we, all that to say is that we wanted to drive narrative through game events. And I think that all, that's what Ultima Online is still doing today. Yeah, they still, still do. Those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what the last one they did was, but that is still the framework that they utilize. So I think I think it was something. Uh, I think a return of I think it was something you and I participated in. Return, it was like the return of Exodus, um, and uh, and you came back and I came back. And, like Blackthorn came back and like it was like, and and we and we actually were on the same side. Yeah, we you and I were on the same side, and then we I, think I think everyone got killed by demons at the end or something. Okay, yes, I remember that now. I saw those screenshots. Uh, so, yeah, to answer your question, we never planned to have traditional quests. Uh, that was never part of the idea. It was always meant to be a big open I always felt, though, that, you know, the... In, in fact, the reason why, to touch on a little bit on Shroud of the Avatar here, too, the reason why uh, I at least believe it's so important to have quests in Shroud of the Avatar uh, is that Ultima Online got away with, quote, no quests, or got away with maybe overstating it. I mean, most MMO, many MMOs don't really have a traditional quest in the sense of a playable story like uh, solo player Ultima's did. Right. But but Ultima Online had the advantage of nine previous Ultimas back to back to back to back over the first 25 years of the entire history of the computer game industry, and so everybody knew the stories, everybody knew about the virtues, everybody knew you know all this basic context. Plus, we added the part that Star just outlined about Blackthorn versus Lord British. And so there was sort of a backdrop, a very deep backdrop to the how and why is the world here, how and why am I here, you know, whose side am I on in this bigger, in the bigger issue, and now I'm going to get back to business doing my whatever I want to do, am I a crafter or am I, you know, uh, uh, adventurer or, or, or what. And so, uh, uh, and so that framework, I, I, I argue that that fictional framework kind of filled in a lot of the gaps Ultima Online, that if it didn't have nine Ultimas before it, there would have been, the, the, the missing story would have been more missing. Uh, felt yeah. that it was more missing. 
And so for Stride on the Avatar, I'm, I'm like super devoted to making sure that we have a, a, a strong story built into the game, not because I think everybody needs to go solve it. I actually think that you know a minor fraction of the people will go solve it. I think the fact that it will be there is what's going to give context to why is everybody... Why are we why are we making swords and armor? What's the purpose of the weapons we're making? Is it literally just so my my friend Joe can be a tougher badass than somebody else, or is there a cause in this world that we might want to be supporting? And it's the story that describes the greater causes that all the industry of players kind of participates in favoring or disadvantaging. Right. Well, and for those of us who do plan to pursue the single-player side of it, too, it'll be nice to have that narrative to follow. So, Exactly. Uh, I think the next question was a fairly quick one. Yeah. Um, just a question for each of you uh, individually. Uh, what were the last expansions? Because, of course, Ultima Online did have several expansions. Um, what was the last one that each of you contributed to, uh, if any? Good question. I mean, I um, uh, I guess I was. Do we leave about the same time, Star? Or I left a little ahead of you. I think in two thousand. Well, uh, so I mean, the the history of the development was that uh, towards the end of Ultima, you know, Ultima Nine was what I started working on, and then moved over to Ultima Online, and then there was a period where Ultima Online got put on pause, and all of that staff got put on Ultima Online, but then uh, towards the end, right as we were launching Ultima Online, Ultima 9 spun back up fully, and uh, all that team got put back on the project, including you, Richard. And so uh, really, uh, as soon as Ultima Online launched, Richard was back on Ultima 9, and I was on Ultima Online for the first six months post-launch, but then, was talked into by Electronic Arts to start working on Ultima Online 2 instead of staying on Ultima Online. Uh, so while I participated in the initial sort of ramp up and uh, uh, kind of idea brainstorming for Second Age, which was the first expansion, um, I, I didn't actually participate in the development of that. I was over on Ultima Online 2 at that point, reluctantly. Hmm. That would have and, been the uh, and, and not to EA bash because, uh, <clears throat> but I will. But uh, but the reason why <laughs> the reason why I say we shouldn't is that you know there's nothing you know people that know the origin EA history often lament either the sale of origin EA or the death of the of other aspects of Ultima they blame on EA. But it's important to note that EA didn't force very many things on any of us. But most things we did we did more or less voluntarily. We just got convinced they were the right ideas and. Oftentimes we look back on it regretfully, um, but uh, but amongst those, you know, for example, is um, uh, you know when we were pitching Ultima Online, we were already working on Ultima Nine, and EA at the time was going like, we don't believe in these online games. Go finish Ultima Ultima Nine, and uh, and then once once they figured out that Ultima Online was going to be a big deal, they basically told me to shut down Ultima Nine and focus on the most important thing happening in EA World, which was UO. To which I said, I know you guys, you're if we put this on hold, you're not going to want me to finish it. And so I wouldn't, I actually kept one or two people on it the full, the, all the way through, knowing that when we finished UO, they were going to try to scuttle Ultima 9, which is exactly what they did. Right. And, uh, and so I had to fight tooth and nail to get Ultima 9 finished, which, by the way, is I think why EA ultimately uh, you know, asked me to leave, shall we say, <laughs> was really because the battles over Ultima Online and Ultima 9 coming into existence at all uh, and uh, and the same thing is I, I would say is true for Star with uh, Ultima Online too, which is our advice after Ultima Online was let's go do Wing Commander Online because we've proven this whole new business model. We need to make everything we're doing Crusader, Wing Commander, everything needs to become an online game. It's a great business model. It's a great expansion of the you know the origin design philosophy. And and EA still, despite the success, was not yet convinced this was a market. They thought it was because it was Ultima, not because it was MMO, and uh, uh, and so they said, look, you know, if we really want to succeed at this, we really need to double down and make UO2 starting now. And they, you know, convinced Star to go start UO2. When our argument at the time was that, hey, UO1 is going to be a moving target, and UO2 is going to be better than UO1, even as it gets better each year on year. 
And so if we start UO2 right now, we'll be we'll be working against an, an ever an ever deeper game. And so there's no there's not going to be any end to the new features we have to keep adding into UO2 before it launches. And right. uh, and ultimately that proved out to be true. And so in the end they also said, yeah, you guys were right, but you know because you were right, we're now going to cancel UO2. And uh, and 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 that was sort of when the rest of the cards you know came down. Right. But again, don't really blame EA. EA EA was really making decisions in the best way they knew how with the data, the way that they organized the data, and it's worked for them very well on a huge swath of other types of products, just not PC role playing games. Right. <sighs> well, um, coming down to the last two on UO then. What were, I mean, you've already given a few, uh, but what, uh, what is just like a couple of really like favorite moments or, or memories from like the very earliest, uh, earliest time of Ultima online, let's say like, you know, kind of just in the run up to go live or just after the game went live, uh, particular favorite moments or memories from around that time, right at the start. Okay, my favorite is the unsavory one. Well, I have two. Well, both of my favorite memories are unsavory. So uh, uh, the first one was uh, as soon as we so we we started the beta, uh, and as soon as the servers went up, like you know, I was we were all sort of like we had all sort of picked our spots where we were just gonna sort of hang out and watch people log in for the first time in the beta, uh, and and see what they did. Uh, so I'm hanging out as Blackthorn, you know, feeling all cool, like it's me, Blackthorn. Like, and of <laughs> course, like when people log in, they're gonna like want to like say hi and be all cool with me. Well, uh, so 30 seconds after the server's open, uh, a female character appears and logs in, and a male character logs in. Both completely ignore me. They turn to each other, and uh, the female character asks the male character if he wants to cyber. Uh, and uh, for those not familiar with the term, because I don't think it's used really anymore. But it's cyber, a little last decade or yeah, two it's, decades it's ago. It's pretty old. Uh, uh, but cyber was the euphemism for having, quote, cyber sex, which at the time uh, involved basically just typing dirty messages to each other, <laughs> which, the by, by the way, the dirty little secret of why Amer uh, Amer AOL was successful and made money and lasted forever was, be was because of uh, cybering in the chat rooms. That was like some, like over 75% of the text activity in AOL, at, on AOL was cybering. Anyway, so the players log in, they say, you want to cyber, and they ran off to a, a building uh, and hid in the building and, and had their, their little moment. Um, Within a week, this had evolved to a prostitution ring at the docks in Britain, uh, where uh, the there was a pimp uh, named Fly Guy, who we had this like musketeer hat, and every, all the clothes were dyeable in the game, right? And we had these we had pretty bright color, so he, he had and a musk so he had dyed his musketeer hat this bright green with a feather. Uh, and he wore like this bright purple cloak. You know, he dressed like a, you know a yeah, stereotypical seventies pimp. Uh, and he had his uh, his uh, hair, you know, his cadre of uh, prostitutes. And you would walk, and he, you know, for five gold, they would cyber with you. And cybering in Ultima Online was was it was typing the dirty messages to each other, uh, like "Ooh, that feels good," or "Slurp, slurp," and then doing the bow animation. In various configurations, in front or behind, or <laughs> like, uh, and and because because there was no sex animations, and you, yeah. they would strip down to their underwear because you couldn't get naked, and they would, and so the and and by the way, uh, that was that was the most successful business in the game for like a month, oh, uh, and and actually I think it may have been the first like successful business in the game as well. So the world's oldest profession. You know that that whole sort of like uh, that old saying, like I saw it play itself out virtually. Jeez, um, uh, and that was all. Uh, that was all during the beta. 
and funny, it's already going strong in Shroud of the Avatar, too. Yes. Yeah, as you witnessed last night. Uh, yeah, so, which is already on Facebook, by the way. Yeah, I've been noticing it in the hip chat stream in our office. I'm like, oh, no, people took pictures. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's when we started joking about making Adult You know, like, we should, we should make, like, an adult version of Ultima. So, the, uh, uh, those... Anyway, then I had one more, and this was not in the beta. This was after we launched, uh, but pretty early on, uh, which were uh, uh, the, 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 the bank robbers. Uh, so the way the game worked is you go out and uh, you go fight things or mine for war, and you, you, you basically had a weight limit to how much stuff you could carry, and so you'd fill up as much as you could, and then you would walk back to town, and you'd put stuff in the bank. Well, uh, because it was a you know it was a two D isometric game, uh, which is when you're outside of a building, it has a roof on it, but when you walk inside the building, the roof pops off and you can see inside. Well, so there's a split second when you go inside a building where you don't see what's inside the building, but you're inside the building, and then the roof pops off. And we had these portals, these teleport portals that could basically teleport you anywhere in the game. Uh, and so these clever, and, but, and towns were safe zones, but the outside of towns was, you know, basically open PvP, because in the very early days of Ultima Online, it was completely open PvP, right. full loot. So these players full of loot would run into the bank, immediately run into a teleport portal that they couldn't see in that split second before, because the clever guys had put it right inside the doorway, uh, appear out in the middle of the woods, standing on a pile of naked, dead corpses, surrounded by PKs who would then kill them and take all their stuff. And, you know, th then that started this whole debate, well, like, is that an exploit? Well, not really, because they're just, like, all those were actual functional game systems, there was nothing, you know, but it made us realize, like, well, maybe we should put a confirmation for when you walk through a teleporter that takes you from a safe area to an unsafe area. So, but that was, I, I thought that was an incredibly clever use of the system. So those are my favorite anecdotes. <laughs> How about you, Richard? Uh, I'll give you one, which is, uh, you know, the time that I, the time that transitioned for me from thinking we were just creating a gaming environment to a, uh, a true role, role, in the proper term, role-playing environment came when... Um, I was actually invisible. I would I would sometimes go and watch the GMQ and see what was going right or wrong in the world. And I'd occasionally appear as Lord British, but as, as often as not, I'd walk around invisibly and just observe how the game was unfolding for you know without disturbing the way the game was unfolding. And in this one case, you know, we had put in this simulation of fishing, and fishing became very popular very quickly, despite the fact that fishing was literally 50-50 chance you catch a fish. That was the whole simulation. And yes, people were People created this mythology of, like, there's better fishing over here or over there or day or at night or whatever else, none of which was true. It was just 50-50 chance you get a fish, at least for the first, you know, months or years. And I was watching this person sitting on a bank fishing, and they were dressed up very well. I mean, they had, like, a straw hat and kind of short pants and I can't remember what kind of shirt, but, I mean, they, they looked like a fisherman uh, sitting here on the shore catching fish. And when they caught the fish, they'd kind of lay it down on the on the banks beside them, which means in theory, you know, people could just walk up and take a fish. But they were they were laying out their catch very nicely on the ground to kind of again create this role-playing ambiance of I am a fisherman. And this person came trundling by in plate armor, carrying a big sword, you know, obviously he'd come back from some big adventure or stocking up at the town, wherever they come from. And and they spoke in text chat, you know, that popped up over the head and basically said something like you know, ah, poor fisherman, you know, I am a great warrior, and I've just returned from grand adventures, and, you know, I have wealth and abundance and armor and abundance, and I see you are poor and destitute. Let me help you out. And he goes and starts laying down by the fisherman's fish, you know, a chest armor and a helmet and a sword and a shield and all this kind of stuff. And the fisherman, you know, responds by saying, Be gone, ruffian! You know, why would I have need of your implements of war? You know, I, I'm a fisherman. In the morning, I come out and I catch my fish. And afternoon, I take it back and I sell it to earn a few coins. And I spend the evening, you know, in the pub, uh, 
drinking and telling stories with my friends, you know, you know, be gone, ruffian. And, uh, and the guy picked up all the stuff and rumped off and, you know, went off. That was the moment for me when I went, okay, we have, we have created something that utterly transcends a game in the way that we had previously thought of games. And, uh, and I have that same feeling. I've already had that same feeling now with Surrounded the Avatar, by the way. I was, I was on, uh, uh, I was with uh, Lord, Lord Winfield, who is the governor of Pax Lair, which was the first player-owned city in Ultima Online. Right. And it's also the first player city in Shroud of the Avatar. And, uh, and he prides himself on building big role-playing, you know, true role-playing communities. And, uh, and I was with him one day when he was giving me one of the first tours of his recently rebuilt packed lair in Shroud of the Avatar. And, you know, as we went by, you know, he was taking me into the barracks and he was saying, you know, this is where we house our fighters and, our, you know, and stuff. And, and to me, I'm sitting here listening going like, okay, he's got a big guild. These really might be the beds in, and places where his fighters that work for him in a guild, you know, might actually keep their stuff. You know, as far as like, as far as I knew, the story he was telling me was literally true that those bunks were his role-playing fighters. And then we went out and uh, and a yard, and there were some graves. And he said, "Oh, by the way, these are the graves of the fighters that fell during our battles with this other town." And when he's telling me this, I'm going. Wait a minute. You know, we don't really have guild warfare in the game yet, but but they could easily have decided to be PvP. So, are these literally the people who have literally fallen in literal battles in our literal world, or is this a story that he's making up for me? And and at this point, I'm going. I actually don't know. I don't know if they really had that battle or not. But he was describing it with the same truth and passion that he had described the the barracks. And then we went over to open up some chests that he had some, like some, some of the, the possessions of some of these fallen heroes that have been left behind. And, you know, he started telling these really deep and passionate stories about the, all of these characters and people that lived within Pax Lair and helped build Pax Lair. And I honestly, to this day, don't know which parts of it were truly role-played within the game or truly fictionally created as backstory for the game. The line wow. is so deeply blurred that I neither know or care to, to resolve it at this point even. And, and, and to me, that's part of the, the wonder of the depth that we can provide people, the, the tools to create it with these role-playing games, is uh, to go beyond... You know, that's one of the things I think is special about Ultimas and Shroud of the Avatar, is they're not games that are where everyone is a combatant. Sure, there's combat in the game, but half the people will almost never get involved in combat. They're here to be merchants, or role players, and often never get involved in combat. But the the mix of all those people, including the combatants together, is what's going to make this made Ultima Online great, and I believe will make Shroud of the Avatar great. Definitely. Well, one last uh, before we switch gears here. If there's one thing, like when you were putting Ultima Online together, um, one thing you would have seen implemented differently or done differently um, had, you know, time and budget permitted? What would that have been? Mm. If anything. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's a great question. I, again, I, I don't know if anyone's asked me that before. Um, so it'll take me a moment to gather my thoughts. I, I... Well, I was going to jump in and say that, you know, at least there were many things we wasted time and money on, you know, like the virtual ecology that really truly turned out to be a waste of time. So if we had if we had the foresight, we could easily have saved a bunch of money on that sort of thing. And and there's no question we should have spent more time, you know, making a more robust fundamental server architecture. You know, it, it's interesting to note that while UO and most um, MMOs since then have had stability problems, especially at launch, but often ongoing, you know, Shroud of the Avatar has been live now 27 months, and, uh, and we've had zero unscheduled downtime, not on wood. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and that's a real testimony to uh, the team's incredible engineering discipline to not fall prey to the problems we had, you know, in the early days. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I, if, if, as far as doing things, I would I would definitely have waited a little longer to go live. I would, I would have given the game about another six months to get more 
performant and more stable. Um, and in fact, my and, and in my experience on Ultima Online led me to like my biggest mantra of development, which is stable, fast, and fun in that order. And you have to get it stable, then you have to get it performing well, and only after you get those two can you worry about making it fun. And uh, so far, we've got the stable part down. Uh, we're trapped, but still need to get the fast. We still have that. Yeah, we're still we're still where sh well shy on the fast. We're one third of the way there. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, honestly, it would, it would really just be about stability and performance. Um, uh, those, are, those that would be the biggest thing. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, I say it's great to hear, you know, uh, in some cases again, in some cases, you know, um, for the first time, uh, you know, thoughts on UO, um, especially because, you know, it's now the only real um, still active thing that bears the ultimate namesake. Uh, but, you know, it's nice to hear some thoughts on it from the people who uh, were there at its genesis. So that's really cool. Well, thanks for having us. As always, if you like Spam 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 Humbug, uh, please do leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or wherever you listen to us. Um, and subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast because um, that also affects our iTunes ranking. If you like the Ultima Codex and you want to help it, um, well, of course, there is the Patreon campaign. The one, uh, a $1 pledge there will get you access to Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug episodes the day before they go live here on the Codex, or rather, well, on the Codex. Um, if Patreon's not your thing, if, you know, regular payments aren't your thing, uh, which, you know, fair enough. Um, but if you like playing computer games and you're listening to a gaming podcast, so I can only assume you do, um, you can actually support the Codex by buying your games through GOG. Uh, we're a GOG affiliate, and so all you have to do is just go to the Codex, click on the GOG banner, and go and buy whatever games you want to buy. You won't pay any more for what you purchase, but we actually get a bit of commission off of it, so that's you know also very helpful for keeping the servers paid for. There's the Ultima Dragons group on Facebook. You should totally sign up for that. Uh, there's an analogous community on Google+. Would encourage you to sign up for that. There's a UDIC hashtag on Twitter. Please, someone start spamming this because I never remember to. <laughs> um, and if you'd like to recommend anyone for a shout-out, uh, you can shoot me an email, ultimacodex at gmail.com, and that's also good for suggesting podcast topics, commenting or criticizing me or the episodes please don't criticize anybody else just me you can also volunteer your time as an occasional or regular contributor to podcast sessions and until next time be virtuous <laughs>